The Anton Savage Show on News Talk. So we have our resident legal expert, that being Sonia McEntee, who is principal solicitor at Sonia McEntee Solicitors and Claire and Claire chair of the Law Society's PR committee. Sonia, how are you? Great, thanks. I'm very glad to have you. Uh, well, A, because you can answer the question, but B, you can also explain the question. A text came in saying, when appointing a power of attorney, can particular things be stipulated in the document to be adhered to? What's he getting at there? Well, uh, I think perhaps a very specific action or maybe something not to be done around a particular piece of business. So when when creating a power of attorney, it would be quite usual to have some a framework perhaps within or parameters within what, which someone can take action. So you authorise very specific things to be done. I mean, no, is power very, of attorney always assigned to somebody because they are unable cognitively to deal with issues themselves. Is that why? I no, we've two different things here. All right. So you can have a general power of attorney, which is I could grant you a power of attorney to do something on my behalf. Very often that's put in place for the signing of documents. Maybe I'm going on holidays and I'm halfway through a house purchase. I need somebody to sign documents on my behalf. And going back to this question, that power of attorney will be quite limited. will set out queer, quite clearly what you can do on my behalf. The enduring power of attorney is very different and that's the that's the um, where someone is starting to lose the capacity to make decisions for themselves. So unfortunately, the new system that has been introduced there has proven to be very, very problematic. It's an entirely online system. So a lot of work going in there now to, to fix that. But that's all under review at the moment. But going back to the query, yes, you can provide um, strict, I suppose, and narrow instructions around what someone can do under a power of attorney. So that I can say you can act as power of attorney on the closure of this real estate sale, but that's it. Correct. Absolutely. On the topic then of, of powers of attorney, a question asking, my mum has been diagnosed with dementia. She has deteriorated fast. Thankfully, her will is in place. But mm. does she need a person to act as power of attorney for her? And what's the process? That must be a very difficult discussion to get into in a family. It is. And, and actually going back to the question that we've just addressed. So this is now the second situation that where someone has... In this case, it seems lost the capacity to make those decisions. So it's too late to put it for that lady to put in place an enduring power of attorney because you do your capacity to do that has to be certified both by a medical practitioner and by a solicitor. So but if how you do want you get to make that corner. Um, well, um, formerly we had a wards of court system, but that system is no longer in place. And that's for lots of very, very good reasons. Um, but through the new assisted decision making um, uh, service and the applications can be made, there will be an application to court to appoint someone who can make decisions on your behalf. But I said it, it, that's all very problematic just at the moment. Um, new rules took effect at the end of April. We're in a kind of a limbo just at the moment in this kind of a situation. So hopefully much of that can be resolved very, very quickly and we get ourselves back on track. So if you find yourself in this situation, I do think have a chat with your local with your solicitor. Just find out what's going on. You may need to come back again in a couple of weeks or a, or a month's time um, once they all of the wrinkles have been have been smoothed out. Does that mean then that if somebody gets a diagnosis of dementia or a, a cognitively limiting condition, mm-hmm that while they are still compass mentis, they should make those decisions around assigning power of attorney? Well, those decisions, should, I suppose, should ideally be made while while you're in the full of your of your mental health. But I suppose it's also the case that someone can be someone can become or be, be diagnosed with dementia, but have very good lucid periods, per, uh, periods where they're fully aware of what they're doing. In those circumstances, you really want to have the guidance of a medical practitioner to say, you know, whatever it is that you're looking at doing now, I'm satisfied that you understand, that you know what you're doing, that you understand the importance of it. All right. So so a, a diagnosis in itself doesn't draw a hard and fast line there, but it does say you need to be very, very careful just moving forward.
Text saying, where a solicitor holds the deeds of our house and other documentation for a number of years, greater than 10 years, can he charge us to release same as we intend to move to a new solicitor? If so, how much should we be expected to be charged? Is it normally, is it normal to charge people for holding stuff on file? Well, there's a cost to the solicitor in holding the Agway. deeds and files in, in the file first in place. Closet. Well, it might be, but it might not be. And there may be, there may be, you, solicitors would have obligations to have, for example, fireproof storage for the keeping of deeds. So it's not, it's not a case of just putting it, putting your deeds on a shelf in the office and leaving them there. So there is, there's quite some care to be taken in storing, in storing deeds for, for um, clients. But it is, of course, something that's very common. What I would say in relation to, you know, fees or charges, I would go back to the terms and conditions that you have in place with your solicitor. Very often there will be something there which says that there can be a charge for the storing of. I'd expect that to be relatively nominal. I wouldn't expect that to be substantial. Um, you may find there's some kind of an administration fee in the release of deeds and that will just be to allow for a little bit of time for the checking. Checking of the file, check everything's there, maybe check everything's up to date, those sorts of things. So I think some kinds of charges could be anticipated. I wouldn't expect them to be substantial. And for things like that, like deeds of a house, do mm. people ever have their own deeds of their house in their house mm. or is it always held with the solicitor? No, What's the norm? On, on occasion they do and there's no obligation to leave deeds with the solicitors but because of what I just said there about the obligations that solicitors have around careful storage and the costs that you would be put to in the event that deeds got lost or destroyed. So it makes sense for a lot of people to leave deeds with their solicitors. The alternative is for everybody who has a mortgage, your deeds are with your lending institution. So they have all of those, you know, uh, good storage facilities there. So your deeds are safe there. Um, but when people have mortgages paid off or maybe they don't have a mortgage, it's, it's common enough to leave them with the solicitor. Yeah. How much does it cost to get a deed back if you've lost it? It could cost several thousands of euros. Really? It could cost several thousands of euros. And, and some of the things that we find are, for example, um, Planning permissions and building regulations, as part of your title documentation, there will always be declarations or opinions on compliance from architects, engineers, those kinds of professional people. And it can be going get back and getting that part done. Oh, so you're incurring so professional fees all over again. For all even, to, even to produce duplicate documentation, you might also have a difficulty in selling. I mean, it, it is an issue on a sale of a property and you may have to take out what's called a title bond. So that's an insurance bond which says... Um, I'm insuring against these deeds turning up somewhere else and perhaps having been used by somebody else or for some other purpose. So it's an insurance bond there to cover that kind of situation. Those kinds of bonds, when we've looked at them before, typically a thousand euros, maybe, you know, so it's it's. So the, the fee for your solicitor to hold it is, is process, small in, in but comparison. There's a, and, there's a re, and there is a real responsibility involved in keeping it for you. A complicated one again. Uh, we undervalued my mum's house in the probate application by 150 grand. As it stands, we would have to pay 70 grand in capital gains tax. Probate has been granted. Is it possible to end the value on probate now? I have literally no idea what that means. Okay. <clears throat> I think what has happened here is that um, on a death, there's a returns to be filed with revenue commissioners, um, typically by the executors. And that set, sets out the extent of the estate that we're dealing with. And the obligation there is to return at market value, whatever the assets are. So what has happened here, we see, is that the the house, the principal house, has been undervalued by 150,000. I mean, it's a fairly substantial amount. And you would expect that executors would take professional, professional valuation advice. So this would seem to be yeah, it, this seems to be quite a big figure. 
why this is important to people, I suppose, is, be- is because it hits them in the pocket. All right. So when you're preparing the probate return, the revenue commissioners then have visibility on the assets in the estate and can see where the assets in the estate are intended to go. So they know who it is intended to pass them on to or whether it will be sale or whatever it might be. And in those circumstances, you're assessing capital acquisitions tax for inheritance tax for beneficiaries. But the market value is set at the date of death. So a subsequent sale, if the property has increased in value, there is also capital gains tax that has to be considered in those circumstances. Post date of death? Post date of death. So if if the probate valuation here, let's say, was 500,000 and the house was sold at 650,000, there would be a capital gains tax liability for the estate in that. So the market values are fixed at date of that and it's really important to get them right and obligations there on executors to ensure that market valuations are returned to the revenue commissioners. So that means that even if you've got a market valuation agreed at the point of probate, if subsequent to that the sale goes through and you exceed it, you need to go back to revenue and say, I owe you more money. Well, you're filing additional returns. But for for as long as an an estate is under administration, there are ongoing um, responsibilities for the filing of returns anyway. So if a property was rented and rent was being generated, the estate would be filing income tax returns. So just because someone dies and there's an estate there doesn't mean that there aren't ongoing um, administration to be attended to with revenue. Nothing in life is ever easy, Sonia. Death Sonia. and taxes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. That is uh, Sonia McEntee, who is Principal Solicitor at Sonia McEntee Solicitors and Chair of the Law Society's PR Committee. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday morning at 9 on News Talk.